0: When you look at pretty much every successful human organization, it's very clear that things are not successful when it's just individual people that are very isolated in, in doing them. It's really the magic of organizations comes in when you have really smart people with different specialized skills working together towards shared goals with a shared context. And that isn't to say that you can't have individual autonomy and things like delegation within a small group, but it's just that it felt like the space was really lacking a framework for understanding how small groups can play into this DAO ecosystem.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast, uh, series four, starting today. In this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, entrepreneurs, and we basically speak about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world we live in. I'm Simone Cicero, and I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Stina Heikkila
2: hello everyone
1: thank you stina and uh yeah today we're also joined by chase chapman dow researcher podcast host angel investor inventor of new things on the internet hello chase
0: hello hello i'm excited to chat
1: in today's episode we're going to talk about the a little bit about the dow landscape uh, and uh, the work that uh, chase among other people is doing with metropolis or the interdao evolutionary organizational model and also the connections of the world of DAOs with the world of traditional organizations and markets. So, so as, a, as a first question, probably it's a good idea to ask you a little bit from your excellent, I would say, observatory, you know, because you run this podcast uh, since a while and we're going to put, of course, in the notes, for the listeners, all the connections with, with your podcast, give us a little bit of a landscape, essentially describing what are the types of DAOs of DAOs that you see emerging and consolidating, and maybe also sharing a bit of your uh, point of view in terms of what are you bullish in terms of type of DAOs that uh, you see very useful and potentially gaining, you know, uh, stage uh, in, in the organizational space. And what are your bearish, instead know, maybe the type of DAOs or spaces where these ways of organizing may be a bit more complex to to bring forth?
0: Yeah, I think the landscape for DAOs has changed a lot over the past year. So maybe it will be helpful to give a little bit of context on where it was about a year, year and a half ago, and now where it, it sort of has evolved into. When DAOs first started, I think they were very much this Heavy on the automation in terms of thinking about how can we take this blockchain technology and create organizations that leverage um, autonomous sort of elements so that they're not super people centric, you know, people might be involved, but the very early version of DAOs was something like the DAO, which was created, I think, in 2015 or 2016. Which was like an investment DAO, and people made decisions on investments and those funds were sort of immediately committed. And and so there was this element of automation, but also people. And I think over time, DAOs have evolved into something pretty different. So over the past, I would say year and a half, we saw DAOs going from these like community-owned organizations that were basically going to be the vehicle for companies to become more democratic, and I think we're still seeing a lot of that, but what I think we've seen over the last year is this acknowledgement that the DAO landscape today is really challenging to navigate, partially because we have a lot of these like monolithic community-centric style organizations, and there's nothing wrong with that. There there are a lot of benefits a- around having this really heavy focus on community, but often when we talk about community, that really means a couple different things. One, it means token holders. It can also mean contributors and it can mean users. And so there's this element of, wow, we're bringing a lot of different stakeholders together and we're building these huge contributor bases that maybe don't make the most sense for every organization to be building, especially organizations that are pre-product market fit, which we see a lot of in Web3, of course, because we're doing a lot of innovating. A lot of these are uh, venture-backed companies that are evolving into DAOs. And so I think over the last year, we've seen the landscape really evolve from quite monolithic DAOs with huge contributor communities, like I was talking about, where you have like bounty-based work, which I'm sure we'll get into what it means to break work down to the atomic level. And I think we're actually shifting more towards this unbundling, where we start to see more of this interoperable style modular organization emerge, where we actually have things like service DAOs, which are kind of like agencies that provide very specialized skill sets. And then you have protocol DAOs, which are the teams that manage protocols. You also have things like investment DAOs, which are more like the original version of the DAO, which is you basically have a pot of money and now you're investing in in different things, either for profit or to like proliferate a meme. And so I think we've really seen the DAO landscape transform into a much more modular ecosystem, which I'm really excited about. And I think that's where we're at in the space right now.
1: It's funny because uh, it was already a little bit of um, a hard catch, let's say, for the average workers or designers or entrepreneurs to understand how DAOs work. And even if we think about the early stage and when we got used to see DAOs more like these kind of distributed decision-making systems for investment teams, essentially, like the DAO, for example. And now that it seems like the, the thesis is even much more taking hold in the market in terms of uh, you know, the places where you can use this model, which is, I think, a, a major assumption behind the thesis of development of your organization, which is Metropolis, formerly known as Roka Protocol. So maybe you can double-click into why you believe that uh, uh, the atomic unit of a DAO, as you say, isn't people or project, but it's a small group of people working together, so the team. So, Why in in this changing landscape, you see the team, you know, the the unit are such an important player and you have such a strong bias towards, you know, the idea that these teams uh, can collaborate and interoperate and and connect with each other across uh, DAOs and maybe contribute their work uh, to multiple organizations?
0: Yeah, when I first dove into DAOs. i'd been working in web3 for a while and i basically spent a year contributing to and researching DAOs. that was my main thing so this was before i joined what was then orca protocol and i kept experiencing all of these challenges as a dow contributor and part of the way that i was thinking about the space and that a lot of other people were thinking about the space at the time was that the atomic unit of the DAO is the individual contributor. It's the person doing the work. And so you saw the rise of bounty-based work, which is basically kind of like an individual, much more simplified version of like an RFP, a request for proposal, except for typically you're actually given the task. And so as a result, you started to see a lot of people doing like what they called bounty hunting, which was basically just saying, hey, we need this task done, something like making a video for Twitter, someone would step up and do it. And that was helpful for a bit. But what started to become very clear was that planning strategic work, and then actually having people execute on that work with the individual as the atomic unit, or perhaps the task as the atomic unit, is actually really challenging. Because not only does it create the sense of disconnectedness from the organization, it also requires the individual people who are interested in doing that work have really high context still. So they have to keep up with the DAO and make sure that they're understanding everything that's going on. They don't have this sense of consistency or knowing that there's going to be work for them in the future. There's really high overhead in keeping up those contributors, making sure that they have context, but also making sure that they're happy. And ultimately, generally what that tends to skew towards is people will say, okay, well, we need a better reputation system and and all that stuff because there's this really high cost to switching different contributors and, and all those things. Ultimately, though, when you look at pretty much every successful human organization, it's very clear that things are not big things are not successful when it's just individual people that are very isolated in in doing them. It's really the magic of organizations comes in when you have really smart people with different specialized skills working together towards shared goals with a shared context. And so As I continued doing this research while I was actually sort of my own test subject and, and contributing to these DAOs, every single time I came back to this idea of small groups. And that isn't to say that you can't have individual autonomy and things like delegation within a small group, but it's just that it felt like the space was really lacking a framework for understanding how small groups can play into this DAO ecosystem. And so I discovered Orca because I met the the co-founders a while back and just kind of kept realizing that Orca, which was what it was called at the time, it's now Metropolis, um, was building this primitive around small groups that was actually super powerful. And I kind of just kept coming back to it and coming back to it. And that's why I decided to get more involved with the team because ultimately it was one of those things where I just realized that this is actually a huge missing part of the ecosystem Again, not to say it's the only part of the ecosystem that matters, but it became really clear that it was it was a a missing puzzle piece that felt really prominent in terms of my own challenges as a DAO contributor and the the tooling that could actually solve those problems.
1: You made a distinction in some other piece, and you spoke about socialware and trustware. Am I right? Was it your your thoughts? Right?
0: Yes, I helped write the piece on socialware and trustware. It was not. I don't take credit for the idea. That was Julia and John from Metropolis. But I spoke about it on, I think, Kevin Iwaki's podcast. And now that is a framework that that we use a lot, which I can dig into. Yeah,
1: maybe because uh, you can maybe double click into this social where and trust where idea because I found it very useful to understand what DAOs are about. I think our listeners can also use that definition, and especially. As I understand, uh, Metropolis wants to kind of build this trustware element so that uh, there is an, um some kind of interoperability between organizations. So it's like building APIs for teams to interoperate and collaborate across organizations by giving them the right trustware uh, to do so. Am I right?
0: Yeah. And, and basically, the idea behind socialware and trustware is in the DAO ecosystem, And I think more broadly, there's this dynamic between human trust and autonomous systems, or I suppose I should say automated systems, that is really hard to compare and talk about intentionally when you don't have words to describe it. But the basic idea is that what the blockchain introduces that's really exciting is trustware, which is essentially like we we like to make the comparison, like what it what what happened when we introduced laws and moved from like the state of nature into these these very specific rules that societies were living by. And when you have that foundation, you can build more and more complex systems on top of it because you have this base layer of trust that everybody knows they're abiding by. This is sort of the the leviathan coming to life in the technological form, basically, is this idea that we have some shared baseline that we're all abiding by that we can now build on top of. So at an organizational level, we've really seen pretty much the only foundation thus far for like organizations is typically laws. Um, And because the blockchain now introduces this idea of cryptographically secured trust foundations, a lot of people are struggling with how much do we rely on human coordination versus how much do we put on chain. And so we introduced this idea of social wear and trustware, where social wear is basically just mechanisms that create assurances through human relationships. So the example that we like to use here is something like a lemonade stand. Technically, someone could come and steal your lemonade, but ideally, they're not going to do that. The furthest version of social wear in this example would actually be some those farm stands where there is no person working it, there's just social trust, and you leave money and you take the fruit or whatever it is that you're taking. Um, there's a really high social coordination cost there, but it sometimes works. On the flip side, trustware is really mechanisms that create assurances through technology, so there's a really low social coordination cost. This would be something like a vending machine in comparison. And so, organizations are made up of both things, but it's really important to label those things and acknowledge them when we're building these types of organizations. And I think when we think about what it means to work on small teams, thus far, we've seen really heavy social wear happening there. So a lot of times there are these very loose guilds, they're often called or working groups. But when you put those things on chain, and you actually codify them, you create this, again, foundation for trust that People can build on top of and tools can build on top of. And I think that is where things get really exciting.
1: Can we say maybe that uh, socialware is needed inside teams and trustware is what you need between teams a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely a framing that makes sense. I think socialware, at any level, if you strip a system of technology down to its bare bones, all Trustware is actually still socialware. For example, if everyone decided to stop believing the U.S. dollar was valuable or the blockchain was a source of truth, then it wouldn't be trustware anymore. So it's all relative. But I think, on a practical level, yes, I think socialware is typically very helpful within teams. That being and and trustware is often helpful uh, between teams. That being said, I think. There are some organizations where you'll still have some you know, social wear between teams and some trust wear within, but I think that's a good framing.
2: I was wondering if we can go back a little bit just to, to help our listeners and myself to understand. So at Metropolis, you are doing this research, right? So you found that moving from that atomic individual level, then looking at those small groups of people and how can they play a role in DAOs, right? So practically speaking, because I think that was an excellent uh, piece as well that on the social wear and trust wear, wear, and I really recommend people to read it because it made it very clear uh, sort of what is embedded in the code and what is still, let's say, the human centric element of the things. But practically speaking, so let's say that at Metropolis, what is your sort of offer or your current thesis and your what what is, what is in the making basically
0: to allow for those small teams to play a role in the DAO's? Our product is called Pods, and Pods are the way that you put these small groups of people on chain. So at a very high level, the way that Pods work is they're actually a wrapper around this very common primitive that most DAOs use, which is called a Gnosis Safe. You can think of it kind of like a shared bank account. And when you think about what a shared bank account means, you have different people who are allowed to use that bank account, allowed to make certain transactions. In the Web3 space, that quote-unquote bank account is actually expanded to something much larger because it's not just a place that holds your money. It actually becomes this container for a group of people to do anything that they want to do on-chain together. And so pods are a wrapper around that to manage who is actually on that shared container, that Gnosis Safe. And as a result, uh, what you actually get is like a membership NFT for the people who sit as members on that pod. And that allows you to build this entire ecosystem on top of these individual groups of people. So you can have these NFTs represent things like voting within a group, and you can do that on chain. But you could also have some sort of interesting, this is sort of a little bit of a a tangential thing, but I always like to point it out because I think it's cool. So under collateralized loans are a really big problem in crypto. No one knows how to solve it. You could very feasibly have a product where I am willing to lend up to, let's say, $10,000 to anyone who is in a pod or a pod that is adjacent to mine. You could also have things like pods interacting with one another in a, in a high trust um, manner, even if it's a low trust environment. So even if they don't know each other well, they can interact with one another. And so as this organizational unit, you have not only benefits of creating a more legible, interoperable organization for individual DAOs, but you also unlock this potential for DAOs to interact more with each other, which matters a a lot as we move into this unbundling of DAOs and more into this uh, ecosystem of protocol service investment DAOs all interacting with one another in this like highly flexible, highly modular way.
2: If we really think about this as a um, as a transition or I don't know a transformation of how organizations are built, because I think that is sort of what we envision in the big vision of DAOs and how how we organize. How would existing organization be able to incorporate these kind of ideas and these kind of products into their way of organizing? Is there a bridge between sort of the existing incumbents and organizations to this? Or is it more disruption? Or how do you see that?
0: This is always a fun question. So I think it's worth taking a step back before we dive into that piece around what I think is exciting about DAOs at a macro scale. I think Ownership and democratizing access to ownership is really exciting. But I think when we think about incumbents and the way that organizations currently exist, what's actually really exciting and different about DAOs is they do for knowledge work what Uber and Instacar did for things like getting around a city and getting your groceries. It's really like this gig economy of knowledge work, and so. When I think about what's exciting around DAOs today, it's very much transforming knowledge work into like a gig economy style. And, you know, we've seen Fiverr and others try to get at this, but there hasn't really been like a structural shift yet. We've definitely seen a trend towards, especially as remote work became really popular with the pandemic, there's been a trend towards uh, companies using more consultants, not wanting to take on not only new people on payroll, but also when things are remote, it's just outsourcing is much easier because the friction of not being in the office is already there. So I think that's important, like macro context. When I think about the way that DAOs might shape uh, existing incumbents and all of that, I kind of have like two different approaches and I can't really figure out which one is right yet. So the first one is that DAOs are going to be best for digitally native organizations. And this is a big challenge in crypto more broadly, which is that for years, people in crypto have been trying to get everyone else to come on board and organizations to transform into more crypto native organizations. I think ultimately, that's a battle that's super expensive and has not very much payoff. I'm much more excited about organizations that are new. And essentially, when I say new, I mean where Web3 is unlocking completely new possibilities And that I think is very much in line with this gig economy of knowledge work and this ability to create incredibly modular organizations. Part of the argument there is that it's hard to imagine existing organizations and existing incumbents accepting those models. On the flip side, I do think that there's an argument that because more organizations are uh, choosing to outsource certain types of work, are sort of restructuring, there's probably an opportunity for them to look more like DAOs, I think the other important element to note here, though, is that one of the core principles of DAOs is this idea of more democratized and distributed ownership among the people who create value in these organizations. And I think it's incredibly hard to imagine an organization that is already structured in terms of ownership in the way that most organizations are structured, which is either like shareholders Uh, making certain types of decisions or being privately owned, it's just really hard to imagine that those people who currently own the organizations would want to give up ownership to the people who are creating value in them. And so I think it's a a challenging balance. Ultimately, I think the first argument is probably more of what's going to happen, though I'm sure that there will be some types of organizations that see DAOs as a, a better mechanism.
1: Well, you know that that's a very important point. I think because um, I don't want to. I don't want to believe that uh, we have to end up in saying DAOs can only work uh, in certain part of the economy or only in knowledge economies or digital economies or whatever. I don't want to do that because you know, for example, if you look into The T-I-M-N framework from David uh, Romfeld. I don't know if you're familiar with that. We used many times in uh, in the podcast uh, that introduced this idea that uh, society goes through these kind of waves, right? Started from from tribes, then moved into institutions, then markets, and now networks. So there needs to be some kind of way that this kind of network-based economy Fits into the existing and transforms it, essentially helping us to uh, transcend it. So maybe you know that's uh, that's a good uh, that's a good way to connect with another topic that I wanted to talk to you about. That is uh, this idea of w- which I call essentially ontological convergence. So I think you know there is a lot that. Um, uh, will, you know, deals with uh, converging on shared languages when we think about operations, uh, Sorry, organizations uh, cooperating. So, for example, we saw this with, with, with the traditional idea of uh, standards or trade agreements uh, when it comes to uh, more traditional economies. And it looks like Web3 and all these digital natives that uh, is transforming finance and you know, digital Products to some extent, uh, ownership and arts like the NF- NFTs uh, is having a very hard time converging on shared protocols. So, you see, many times uh, people coming up with new protocols, new ideas, you know, and rarely there is a convergence on an existing protocol, for example. What is your thought in terms of, uh, you know, this kind of role of convergence, ontological convergence? adopting an existing domain model when we think about any part of the economy. So for example, you are with Metropolis, you're working on how teams are, you know, pods are described, how they can collaborate, Um, but this is a language to some extent. So are you wondering, for example, how you're going to drive the adoption of the protocol you have been designing in your product into making other organizations adopt the same protocol? and among these organizations the question is how can we get existing organizations or incumbents at every level of the value chain so i know that is a very fuzzy question but the point is how can we or how can we expect that uh, ontological convergence and i would say an intentional decision to collaborate between players through a shared protocol a shared language uh, that could make this collaboration happen even between incumbents and new digital native organizations, um, how can we expect this to happen or are we encouraged that uh, this is not going to happen? So we're going to waste a lot of time in creating, you know, tens of protocols that basically do the same thing and don't really collaborate, interoperate with each other. Because, you know, I know that you are also very much into this idea of interoperability.
0: Yeah. So, okay, there are, there are a few things to unpack in this. I think... First, it's worth acknowledging why we have not seen more convergence or why we have not seen more DAOs and projects built on a shared protocol because that is like the base layer here. So the challenge that we're facing in Web3 today is that there is always an incentive because we are early to build at the protocol layer instead of at the project layer. And a perfect example of this might be something like CryptoKitties, which was this big NFT project in 2017, really blew up, brought a lot of people into the space. Super user-friendly experience. It was on Ethereum, which is uh, the blockchain that's most common today, I would say that team then went on to build flow which is focused on which is a blockchain a totally different blockchain that in some ways competes against ethereum and is focused on building really great user experiences what's important to note there is they built CryptoKitties as an application on top of ethereum first but then decided to build their own protocol so you actually have divergence and you had convergence that turned into divergence And there are a couple of reasons for this. One, economically, it always makes more sense to spin up a new protocol. But also, there were challenges with Ethereum. It was really slow, which made it incredibly not user-friendly, and it was very expensive, that made it so that that team needed to build a totally different protocol if they wanted their application to scale. And by doing that, they created opportunities for other projects to build on a scalable chain. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing is not necessarily this inability for interoperability to exist. It's more so that we've experienced a lot of the pains of being early. And so oftentimes what we see is teams realizing this protocol doesn't work and iterating on it themselves. So I don't think it's that the industry is not able to have this like ontological convergence i think it's much more that we are just very early and people are constantly building on each other's work and the other thing that matters here is that work like in this space in web3 open source is the standard it is the default everything is open source and so you can easily fork a blockchain and make your own version and iteration of it and i actually think that makes us better now It means that we don't see some of the network effects that you would see if all of these things were happening on the same protocol. And I think that's totally okay because ultimately it's creating this competition that's making everyone better because of it. When it comes to DAOs and all of the different uh, approaches to do we build on top of shared infrastructure? Do we create our own infrastructure? Um, Something that Metropolis has made as a very conscious decision is actually to not require people to be on our own protocol. We wrap around Gnosis Safe, like I was talking about earlier, which is the most widely adopted um, set of smart contracts for DAOs, probably by a long shot. And so rather than building our own new protocol, we've actually built a protocol on top of theirs that just adds functionality and adds this ability to have a relationality and interoperability between these, this, um, the the specific spaces that the existing protocol already instantiates so i think that is a really important element to this whole puzzle is that a i think the fact that we're seeing new things pop up all the time rather than people building on existing infrastructure is actually just because we're pretty early um and you're actually seeing less of that now than you you were probably you know three or four years ago which is really exciting b Builders like Metropolis are essentially choosing to build on existing infrastructure and make it better instead of building our own fork in our own version. Um, and then finally, I think more broadly, what we're going to start to see in the space is Metropolis is an open protocol. So we aren't like some sort of centralized organization storing your organizational blueprints. It's all using smart contracts. So it's on chain. Anyone can read from that data, all of that. And from that perspective, I think what we're going to start to see is more open protocols um, in Web 3, where hopefully it used to be that in Web 2, you could have this moat by like trapping users into your platform. With protocols, you no longer have that because all of the data is on chain. If a competitor wants to come in and what we call vampire attack your users, basically see who all your users are and try to get them onto their platform, they can absolutely do that. Um, Now, when it comes to bridging existing organizations that are not Web3 into the Web3 space, I think there's a really exciting opportunity for using these open protocols to um, onboard different types of organizations uh, and have them sort of join in the the network effects that we're seeing in the space. Like things like Gnosis Safe, because it is a protocol that most people use, you can see network effects starting to bubble up. I think the really important thing here is that existing incumbents and organizations don't try to build their own version yet again unless they feel like they need to iterate on it um and that's where the that's where that tension comes in is do we build on top of something or do we do we potentially not all projects that have iterated are like this but there is like a money grab involved if you wanted to build your own new blockchain or tool or whatever and so i think it's going to be a really Important balance to try to make sure that organizations that are coming into the space that are not Web3 native are adopting open protocols and building with an open protocol mindset.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the Gnosis Safe is essentially can be seen also as an interface to existing organizations, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a wallet, let's say, right? It's a way to manage a wallet through uh, multiple keys, essentially. And, and so you can think of an existing team kind of uh, existing outside of the blockchain let's say outside of web3 and connecting into web3 uh, through this interface right so to some extent it's a it's a, essentially an innate way to integrate existing organizations into the layer
0: yeah it definitely is and something that I always tell people when it comes to bringing organizations into the space, I think you're right around Gnosis Safe being this relatively simple way to integrate teams into the ecosystem. I think one of the best ways that organizations can interact with the Web3 space is not by trying to onboard their entire organization. I think the compatibility around some of those pieces is still something that is challenging to figure out and just ends up being really, really high overhead, which you see a lot. You see organizations saying, We're going to become more Web3 native and then they don't do any of it because it's really hard for them to interact with the Web3 ecosystem because of these like foundational organizational infrastructure pieces and all that. So I think the best way to do that is actually to say, as an organization, we're going to create this or choose a certain team that is basically going to be our Web3 experimental team. The Ready did this very well. They had a couple of people who were highly focused on DAOs that dove in very deeply I think you need that type of team that is basically a web three native style team sitting within your organization, just how you've had, you know, little, I, I know this was a big thing of like the 2010s was having like innovation units, you know, within different larger organizations. I think it needs to be the exact same way. Otherwise... It ends up being this very expensive effort that actually has very little payoff because getting your entire organization to reap the benefits of being Web3 native requires that they actually become Web3 native, which is very challenging to do. So I think a much smaller team with a little bit more autonomy to do experiments is, is a much smarter way to approach it.
1: Yeah, maybe I I can try to make a kind of an example for for our listeners to understand what I mean here, what we mean here. So, for example, let's think about, I don't know, Ford Motors, like, you know, uh, wanting to develop a new application based on data on, you know, the consumption of energy of cars, you know, electric cars, and uh, wanting to do so, they maybe discovered that exists a DAO that would basically feature also on the podcast. Called uh, demo that creates data in this Web3 space, and uh, let's say that Ford Motors wants to enable a team to start interacting with this ecosystem by building products. So maybe they have to even invest into specific developments. Maybe they need to participate into grants or um, you know interoperate with the DAO to some certain extent, which is essentially, for example, I don't know, investing into an existing team sub-DAO team in, in DEMO that is developing a certain functionality that they need for motors uh, to improve their application, something like that. So this team would have to, uh, let's call it you know, the energy monitoring team that is developing these applications, has to interoperate with DEMO data, has to interoperate with the sub-team in DEMO that is developing the data standard or improving the functionality of the protocol. And so a way to interoperate would be, for example, to invest the money into a grant or invest money into a team that is developing certain features. What are the primitives that you are embedding into a Metropolis so that, for example, this protocol could be adopted by one side, by a DAO like DEMO saying, you know, let's use Metropolis protocol to enable our teams so that... Some some other players like Ford, uh, for example, can call some of these primitives uh, to make their existing product teams able to interoperate with the teams of the DAO.
0: I will say, just before I dive into it, our current focus is definitely not organizations like Ford, only because it's really expensive and time-consuming to onboard organizations that are not Web three native, like. Our focus is very much organizations that are already on chain that see the value of being on chain. You know, <laughs> there are definitely other organizations, maybe years from now, that will be our focus. So I'll, I'll take like a five-year view, maybe not five, three-year view of this. So one of the things that's really exciting about pods is that, yes, it allows us to codify existing organizational units. You can take these two teams. What's exciting, though, that Gnosis Safe doesn't have really a loan is this relationality between teams? So today you spin up a Gnosis Safe, there are all kinds of modules that you can add onto it, but at a very basic level, you have the shared bank account. What pods actually allow you to do is establish relationships between these organizations. And the way that we do this is essentially nesting. So you might have a new pod spun up that is for the Ford pod and the demo pod, you can actually spin up another pod that they are both members of that gives those two pods like a shared bank account for the experiment or a shared container for resources, for permissions, for all of these different things. And so from by doing that, you basically create these containers for collaboration that are super, super modular. You could also, if you wanted to, have the, the main like collaboration pod, be the admin of the two pods. You could have all these different things. Um, And ultimately what that allows you to do is create relationality between the different organizations. And that seems so simple, like you can nest two pods within a pod, but you can't do that today. And what that means is you're relying on social wear between the organizations to facilitate a collaboration on a trustware level, which doesn't work. And that's where you get into this like digital cities thesis. So we rebranded from Orca to Metropolis. And one of the main reasons was we felt like cities were this actually really, really good mental model for thinking about complex systems. And one of the main things that you need in order to develop a sufficiently complex system is relationality among the elements. So you can't really get that much done if you're a heavy trustware organization, if you cannot develop trustware encoded relationships between these these specific entities. And I guess to take a step back, when I say things like permissions, what I mean is these two organizations might be able to develop a shared space for this like data sharing concept. Um, who can access that data is probably important. You can actually codify that using pods. You can say only this group of people, only the people who are within this pod, which would be made up of the demo pod and the the Ford pod, can access this data. And so you start to see all of these different ways in which you can actually create highly relational like synergies between different parties, which totally opens up the design space for what's possible and what can emerge. Would
1: you maybe double click into, for example, this primitive of nesting that you described? Would you kind of describe a few other primitives that exist in the the Metropolis protocol, so that to make it more chewable, more understandable for the people uh, listening to this in terms of understanding what Metropolis is really about?
0: Sure, yeah. So at the very basic level, it's a pod has members, which are either individuals or they can be other pods. And so pods at a very basic level develop relationships between groups and other groups and then groups and individuals. When you put those things on chain, what you actually get is this permissions layer which can mean permission to access this sort of shared bank account. It can mean permission to access certain types of data. There's something called verifiable credentials, which have been very popular in the Web3 space over the past six months because you need a way to have private data that is still accessible via the blockchain. So things like permissions to access verifiable credentials You also have things like permissions to write to certain protocols, to modify certain protocols, to put certain things on chain. And ultimately, it's this combination of a dynamic uh, ledger of basically who is in an organization, this nesting, which is essentially coming from the fact that a pod can be part of an organization, which is where you get nesting. And then on top of that, this permissions layer, which allows you to do a bunch of different things. So those are really like the two primitives that make pods magical. Anything that you build on top of that, you could imagine if Ford's organizational blueprint actually was on chain, onboarding to something like Slack would actually be much more simple because all you need to do is read which members exist in which parts of the organization. You can see all of that on chain. Now, this is actually much more useful for DAOs because they're already doing a lot of things on-chain. They're doing things like salary payments on-chain. And so if you could just simply read right. from the organizational ledger, that stuff just makes it a lot easier as well.
1: So we can imagine in the future of such a protocol things such as, for example, you know, salaries or uh, revenue sharing agreements or, I don't know, uh, splitting flows of money going from here to there a lot of this is related to financials, am I right? And and credentials, you said.
0: So I think early on it's related to financials. Like Today we're seeing most of the DAO tools that have seen any amount of success are basically payment tools. I actually think we're going to see this change a lot though over the next year or two because financials are really scratching the surface. This is how you also saw the crypto space evolve from finances to now culture and identity. I think the same thing is going to happen where right now dow tooling is mostly focused on financials but later on you could actually see quick little side note there's this project called meta label which is all about um, essentially labels creating culture through these things called drops so like it's all about defining a group of people who are effectively working to create culture by creating products or media or whatever you could have a pod where permissions to help create culture and help do these drops are actually defined by Being in a certain pod. So I think, yes, today it's financial. I think in the future it's going to expand out and do a lot more.
1: We can think of, for example, I don't know, an organization having some production kind of controls, for example, deciding how much of some output. You know, imagine a factory, for example, and the team managing the small factory being able to set their own configurations, let's say, for the tuning of production and maybe empowering this team to. Control these tuning elements on their own, you know, because they have this uh, freedom of delegation of freedom on acting on these parameters on in their own control. And this can be programmable through something like Metropolis protocols.
2: When you're saying that, that's that's sort of in a pipe dream that I'm I work a lot in um, public policy and trying to manage different ecological and social transitions that we are seeing. And I always get quite excited about thinking about what those tools would be able to contribute to those kind of claims that are being made. I'm thinking now, for instance, of uh, Net Zero. There's a lot of talk about that at the city's level, at company levels, and so on. And I see this as somehow offering a new set of tools that could make such claims much more, let's say, easy to be held into account by different stakeholders. And that's something that I would be very interested in seeing if it could evolve in that direction. I don't know if Chase, if you've seen anything in that way, but that sounds relevant to me.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of these cases, we're still working through exactly how that translates and how these pieces all come together. I think like obviously cities is a really interesting use case in general. There's a lot to understand about the way that these types of systems already exist and where we can plug in. And again, like where it makes sense to plug in versus where there's just too much like oppositional force.
1: I mean, you could imagine a citizen group uh, being entitled to decide over some kind of budget elements uh, and program these rights through something like a metropolis protocol, something like
0: that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's interesting. So some of this reminds me of Balaji's most recent writings around these like sort of nation network states, but that almost compete with nations. And again, this comes back to like this through line, which is this question of how much has technology fundamentally restructured what we're doing to the point where these types of systems are actually incompatible with old systems. I think Balaji presents a really compelling case in his book that basically like no matter what citizenship through something like pods and being able to make those decisions will definitely be compelling and a use case. It's just a question of, is it going to be existing nation states? Or is it going to be more of these like network states? I think they're not mutually exclusive. And I would love to see, you know, local governments onboarding onto pods. I think the challenge that you start to face is just that like web three onboarding is still pretty bad. And we need to get to a point where there are enough people who are comfortable using the technology. Because I think the last thing that you want to do is disenfranchise certain types of people because they're not able to leverage and make use of Web3. So I think we're definitely a few years out. There are a lot of projects who are working on Web3 onboarding, and I think that infrastructure is going to be required realistically in order for this type of technology to be useful at things like a government level.
1: Right. Chase, before we close, we are kind of uh, uh, inaugurating a new practice here in the podcast of this year that uh, basically revolves around asking to our guests to share what we call breadcrumbs. So some kind of things that uh, you want to share with our listeners, that those can be, I don't know, something that you've read, a book or an article, or maybe a movie that you've seen or uh, you watched, or maybe, you know, anything else that you believe our listeners should look into. And it can be one, two, three, whatever you want. But essentially, imagine you're leaving some breadcrumbs to our listeners. What would they be? And you can take a moment to think through these if you you want.
0: There are a couple pieces that come to mind. So in terms of DAOs, I think a prehistory of DAOs is a fantastic piece that I would highly recommend giving a read. I struggle with reading and especially long pieces. And this piece is definitely long, but it is so good. It is fully worth doing. The other piece that I've been processing a little bit that is not directly related to DAOs, but that is really shaping my understanding of where this space is going and also really like captures better this idea of cultural production that I was kind of hinting at is a piece by Toby Shoren called Life After Lifestyle, which he published very recently that does a fantastic job exploring Cultures and what it means for brands to create culture um, and all of those pieces. So those are two phenomenal pieces that have definitely shaped the way that I approach the space and also um, the, the way that these these organizations are evolving.
1: Thank you so much. I mean, again, congrats for the work you're doing with Metropolis, the work you're doing with the podcast, which our listeners should really look into. And, you know, we're going to have all these notes in the podcast notes. Chase, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed being on the show with us.
0: Yes, it was so fun to jam on a few of these things. And I'm glad we got to dive in pretty deep.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we we tend to to ask these kind of difficult questions that normally takes a week or so to really chew up and digest. So thank you again for being available.
2: Great to have you, Chase. Good uh, opening epi- episode. I'm not sure if we if we managed to be more down to earth than <laughs> that we set out. Because our questions, like Simone said, are, they tend to, to go very deep into the rabbit hole. So thank you so much for sharing your uh, insights, and I really also suggest, um, yeah, reading the pieces on Met- Metropolis. The, you you have great writers in your organizations, including yourself. So it makes it very understandable. So that's that's something that I would really recommend to our listeners. Coming back to the show notes that you can find on Bounderless.io/resources/podcast. That's where you need to go find. A chase episode, and you will find listed everything that has been mentioned in today's conversation. To our listeners, we catch up soon and remember to think boundaryless. I just came back from a walk in the park and I was listening to Chase episode again and I think it's really a nice onboarding for the topic of decentralized autonomous organizations. If you listen to that and read a couple of the blog posts from Metropolis like trustware and socialware or digital cities, at least for me it helped me a lot to try to understand some of the dynamics of DAOs without being too technical. So, yeah, I was really I'm really excited to release it.
1: I think this was a great episode, and uh, still I see this kind of uh, chasm between uh, you know the digital and the organizational. Seems like uh, even Chase is a bit uh, confused or, or puzzled about uh, onboarding. Uh, I would say the incumbents, right? So that's maybe the highlight, the highlight for me after this conversation, and you know overall a great way to start the season.